on the Sabbath. And once again, the religious leaders are less than pleased. But in chapter 9, we learn a great deal about who Jesus is. The man that John called the true light way back in chapter 1. The man who calls himself the light of the world in chapter 8 and does so again in chapter 12. This man helps blind people see. And also shows that people who think they see may actually be blind. So open up to John chapter 9, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you need it. Take one home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have in your word. Thank you that we have the privilege of calling you our Father. That we can pray to you, cry out to you, and know that you hear us. We can pray to you, approaching you with confidence, not because of anything in us, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Thank you that we have the joy of worshiping you every single Sunday. That's a joy and a privilege that not every believer has under the same circumstances as us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not take that for granted. Thank you that you are making us true worshipers. That as we discussed a few weeks ago, that this living water that you give us helps us worship you in spirit and in truth. Know the truth about who you are and what you've done and respond accordingly. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning would be characterized by worship in spirit and in truth. That we would respond rightly to what you reveal about yourself to us in your word. And that we would worship you fully. Give you all the worship that you deserve. Lord, thank you for your patience and your kindness that even as our worship can't truly ever do you justice in all of your greatness, that you accept it as a loving father. But Lord, grow us in worship, grow us in love for you this morning. And thank you for the opportunity to get together to do just that. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The disciples' question in verse 2 may strike us as cruel. How could they possibly assume that someone's physical disability from birth is the direct result of sin? That sounds so heartless. 
Well, the truth is that they weren't pulling that out of thin air. While Christians like us might not make the direct connection the disciples do in verse 2, we do believe that physical brokenness is one of the consequences of life in a fallen world. On top of that, let's be honest. God has every right to punish sin how he sees fit. In Numbers 12, God strikes Miriam with leprosy when she opposes Moses. And lest we think that's just an unfortunate outburst by the angry God of the Old Testament, we see similar instances in the New Testament. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira die as a result of lying to God. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul makes a direct connection between the Corinthians' sinful abuse of communion and the fact that some of them have gotten sick or even died. While these texts might make us uncomfortable, we can't ignore them. And lastly, before you judge the disciples as insensitive jerks, is their assumption about the relationship between suffering and sin really all that different from the popular idea of karma? If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And if something bad happened to you, then you must have done something to deserve it. However, with all that said, we are right to want to correct the disciples. How do we know that? We know that because Jesus corrects them. He makes it clear in verse 3 that this man's blindness is not a direct result of anyone's sin. The disciples and you and me should not assume that someone's suffering is evidence of God's judgment. Now, could suffering be a consequence of our actions? That's certainly possible. If I decide to jump off my roof, no one should be surprised if I break my leg. But there's a difference between consequences for actions And judgment from God. If we assume that someone's suffering is judgment from God, we repeat the error of Job's three friends, those who were ultimately rebuked by God. Now, could we be right? Maybe. But we would also be wise to recognize that we're not in a position to make those sorts of judgments. And on a related note, the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement commit this same error. They assume that one's health, wealth, and happiness are always directly connected to one's level of faith and obedience. Avoid those movements. So Jesus makes it clear That this man's blindness is not a direct result of anyone's sin. But you know, as unpleasant as the disciples' assumption in verse 2 may seem, we also shouldn't overlook the challenge of Jesus' response in verse 3. Jesus says that this man was born blind, not because of anyone's sin, 
We're good with that. But so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's an important update. (laughs) Are we good with that? Are we good with verse 3? Jesus seems to be saying that God has, at the very least, allowed this man to suffer a physical disability that led him to begging in order that God's glory might be displayed through him. Are we good with that? If we're being totally honest, that may seem just as distasteful to us as the disciples' assumption in verse 2. And if you think that's a tough pill to swallow in this chapter, just wait until we read about Lazarus next week. But in the end, Jesus does heal this blind man. I mean, he's the light of the world, after all. And light helps people see. On top of that, Jesus indicates that he won't be around to do this sort of thing much longer. Night is coming. So Jesus spits, makes mud, puts it on the man's eyes, and instructs him to wash. But when the man comes back seeing, Jesus is apparently nowhere to be found. Now we may wonder about the significance of the spit and the mud and the washing. There are all kinds of different theories about why Jesus would heal this man the way he does rather than simply speaking, which he surely had the power to do. But the truth is, we don't know for sure. But we've got a few hairy theological questions on our hands just in these opening verses. We've encountered the tricky question of the relationship between sin and suffering. We also have to wrestle with the idea that God might allow people like us to suffer for the sake of his glory. Now, we'll come back to those questions a little bit later. And as we mentioned, we'll discuss the second one in much more depth next week in chapter 11. But for now, let's move ahead in John chapter 9. In the following verses, we see that the man's neighbors are stunned. They could not understand how this blind beggar could now see. So they go to their friendly local religious leaders for answers. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Maybe the simplest explanation of why Jesus spit and made mud has to do with the Sabbath. 
Like in chapter 5, the religious leaders are shocked that Jesus would do that sort of work on God's established day of rest. They couldn't grasp how a man who claimed to be sent from God could, by their standards at least, break the Sabbath. The religious leaders are blinded by their preconceived notions. Blinded by their deeply held assumptions about what God expects according to his law and can't imagine a scenario where they might be wrong. The formerly blind man, on the other hand, is starting to see Jesus more clearly. His eyes are being opened in more ways than one. The religious leaders even call in the man's parents as part of their interrogation. That ultimately gets them nowhere, so they confront the man again in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. While the religious leaders double down in their refusal to see who Jesus really is, this once blind beggar gives some wonderfully simple responses. Verse 25. Look, guys, I still don't have all the answers about him either. But one thing I can tell you. I was blind, but now I see. It's got to be worth something, right? Verse 33, the proof is in the pudding. If this man was not actually sent from God, there's no way he could do what he just did. And I love how the man even cops a bit of an attitude in verse 27. Like, why are you so obsessed with him? Like, do you like have a crush on him or something? But all joking aside, the religious leader's response in verse 28 shows that they 46. Jesus said that Moses wrote about him. They don't have to choose between following Moses and following Jesus. 
Nevertheless, the religious leaders refuse to see what the once blind man is starting to recognize. And as a result, they cast him out of the synagogue. Back in 2 Kings 8, the prophet Elisha opens the eyes of the blind. John 9 is not the first time in the Bible that a blind person has been given sight. But opening the eyes of someone who's been blind from birth, that's new. Who in the world could do something like that? Well, the Messiah can. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18. And that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The prophet says in verse 5, chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah goes on in chapter 42, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah's message is this. That when the Messiah comes, the blind will see. That must mean that Jesus is the Messiah, right? It's right there. Well, not according to the religious leaders. They just don't see it. They can't see it. Finishing out the passage, chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Are you talking about us, Jesus? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. So by the end of the story, the blind man has 20-20 vision, both physically and spiritually. Meanwhile, the religious leaders, the ones who you would think would have perfect spiritual vision, are just as blind as ever. No wonder Jesus calls them blind fools in Matthew 23. Imagine for a moment that you go to the heavenly eye doctor and take a spiritual vision test, which I assume is in network. 
the angelic eye doctor holds up a picture of Jesus. And the doctor says to you, tell me what you see. If you respond with, I see the Messiah. I see the Son of God. Then praise God, because you have perfect spiritual eyesight. But if you look at that picture and say, I don't know. I'm not sure where he comes from. Then you need God's help. Because you are spiritually blind. Jesus is the light of the world. And light is great. It can help us see more clearly. But in the words of theologian Bruce Springsteen, we can also be blinded by the light. While Jesus helps some see more clearly, he exposes others as blind. He says he came into this world for judgment. And as we've said before, one man's judgment is another's salvation. You know, it's ironic. In Genesis 3, verse 7, immediately after Adam and Eve sin, we read that their eyes were opened. But in a very real way, sin caused them to go blind. And in Acts 9, Saul, the persecutor of Christians, friend of the religious leaders we read about today, Saul has an encounter with the risen Christ, goes blind, but then comes out seeing. As descendants of Adam and Eve, we are all spiritually blind in and of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that Satan wouldn't have us any other way. So like Saul on the road to Damascus, we need an encounter with the crucified and risen Lord to help us see. Thankfully, God is still in the business. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God can help spiritually blind sinners like us see the light of his son. The light of the world. Jesus Christ. Now, one question that may come up from a passage like this. Can Jesus still give physical sight to the physically blind? Well, the answer, of course, has to be yes. He's God. However, we also need to recognize what we said earlier and what we'll discuss more next week. While God can heal us. He can also use our sufferings, our weaknesses, and even our disabilities to display his glory. When we lived in Batesville, we had a young woman in our church who was born blind. She joined us on Sunday mornings. She came to faith in Jesus, and the entire church family embraced her. All took her in as our own. Olivia and I would often give her rides to and from church because her biological family refused to help her. And even though she could not see physically, she could see spiritually. And for that, she rejoiced. She's a living, breathing example of another challenging thought from this passage and elsewhere in the Bible. 
What matters more than physical healing is spiritual healing. We're reminded of that in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, when Jesus says that we are better off going to heaven blind than going to hell with 2020 vision. We're also reminded of it in Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. In that passage, Jesus does eventually heal a paralyzed man, but Jesus seems far more concerned with forgiving the man's sins. Now, I certainly don't make to, mean to make light of physical blindness. I've never experienced it myself, and I don't want to take the challenges of being blind or suffering any other disability for granted. However, it's hard not to conclude from Scripture that our spiritual ailment, sin, is far more dangerous than any physical ailment we may have. Being disabled won't send you to hell. Sin will. So thanks be to God that while Jesus may not heal all of our physical ailments in this life, through his death and his resurrection, he heals our spiritual ailment in eternity without fail. As we close, look to Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. This is a prayer of the Apostle Paul. We would do well to model our prayers off of prayers like this one from Paul. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all In all. That is a wonderful prayer in its entirety. But I draw your attention specifically to verse 18. Paul prays that the Christians in Ephesus would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. May the same be true of us. If you believe in Jesus, thank God for healing your spiritual blindness. And if you haven't believed in Jesus, I pray that you would see the truth today. That you would know who he is. You would know where he came from. You know what he has done. That we would know that he is the light of the world. May our eyes be ever more open to that truth. Until we see him face to face. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you open the eyes of the blind. Not just the man in John chapter 9, but really every single one of us has been blind in one way or another before. Some of us still are. But Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes. Thank you that you have opened the eyes of so many in this room. That by your grace, by the power of your spirit, through the testimony of your word, through people who have preached the gospel to us, you have opened our eyes to the truth, the truth of the light of the world. And Lord, I pray that you would continue opening eyes. Open the eyes of those who don't believe, those who do believe. I pray that you would continually open our eyes more and more to the glories of the gospel, the great things you have done for us, what you have in store for us in the future by faith. I pray that you would continually help us see more clearly. Help us fix our eyes on you, sustain us in our faith, help us persevere in our faith, especially when faith includes things that we can't see, but we know are true. Lord, again, just help us see you more clearly. And help us respond accordingly with faith and love and obedience. Thank you for Jesus' broken body, shed blood, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and one day his return. I pray that you would sustain us until we see that day in all its fullness. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.